our featured scripture lesson for this evening, Ash Wednesday. It comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and 12 through 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes. Their like has never been from of old, nor will be again after them in ages to come. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. Who knows whether the Lord will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call an a solemn assembly, gather the people. Sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even infants at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Why should it be said among the people, where is their God? The word of the Lord. Well, people of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. There is a TV show, one that wrapped up. It's actually fairly recent. It, it, it finished its original run just maybe about a year ago. It's on Netflix. It's the one that my family is currently watching. Now, some of us have seen it already. Some of us are watching it for the first time, but we're joining in it together, and I love this show. It's called The Good Place. Now, The Good Place focuses in on four human beings and their experience with the afterlife. Now, I'm not going to give any great spoilers for those of you who have not seen it. Like I said, it's still on Netflix. It's a great show. I really recommend that you watch it. But I'm going to give one tiny little one. Now, this is a very early thing. It's not really that big of a, of a spoiler. It happens in like maybe the second episode. You find out that one of the individuals who originally you think is a Buddhist monk who had taken a vow of silence on earth and is now continuing it in the afterlife is actually a guy named Jason Mendoza who can best be described as a exuberant, excitable man-child from Jacksonville, Florida. And it's safe to say that Jason, as wonderful and as funny and as, as lovable as he is, is not the brightest bulb in the box. In fact, he's quite, quite foolish. He's quite, quite, well, we might even call him dumb. He's just not smart. But every once in a while, even though his character is played for comic relief quite well, every once in a while, Jason will make a statement that is so off the wall, utterly significant, that it catches everyone's attention. And in fact, in one of the last episodes of, of the final season, they even make a big joke about it when he makes not one, but two significant statements back to back and all the other characters are kind of flabbergasted by it. This idea of something significant that seemingly comes out of nowhere is one that I'm grabbing onto and I'm thinking about tonight as we consider this tendency within our scriptures. 
Now, throughout the course of the scriptures, we oftentimes see this. When an individual who we know very little about makes either a statement or takes an action that is so significant that they have to break away from the narration or the type of writing that they're in or in order to highlight it. Now, there's one example of this that really, really comes to mind for me, and it happens actually very early on in the book of First Chronicles. Now, if you're familiar with First Chronicles, it's actually basically a big family tree. It's like this guy who had these sons, and then this guy had these sons, and this guy who had these sons. And yet there's this individual named Jabez, and he prays a prayer, which is so significant that they break away from this chronological like family tree for about two verses to feature this prayer, and then they go right back into it. We know nothing about the guy except this significant prayer. That's one example. And then there's another example of this type of thing, and it's actually a type of writing within what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, and it's what's known as the minor prophets. Now, as you might know, there's a lot of prophetic writings throughout the course of the Bible, a lot of them. Some of them are, are attributed to single individuals who wrote a lot, and we have a lot recorded. Those are called the major prophets. And then we've got this other batch called the minor prophets. And it's not that they aren't important, it's just that what they have written is so significantly shorter than what some of the other ones were. Those major prophets, they might have dozens and dozens and dozens of chapters attributed to them, whereas the minor prophets only have a few. A great example of that is our scripture for tonight and the prophet Joel. Joel, I'm not saying was not important. I'm not telling you that he wasn't active and actually spoke a lot as a prophet to the people. But what we have recorded of, of Joel is very minimal. It's three chapters. You can read the whole thing in about five minutes. And here's the thing about Joel. We don't know much about him. We know his name, Joel. We know his father's name because it's listed in the first verse of, of, of Joel. And that's about it. Based on this brief writing that we have from Joel, scholars have placed him as active somewhere between 200 to 800 years before Jesus. So we've got a nice 600-year window. We don't even know very accurately when he was active. So we've got this individual who speaks some very important messages but we don't know anything about it. It's this idea of it's coming almost from left field. We don't know where it's coming from, but we know it's significant. Now, what it reveals is interesting, and we have to sort of make some inferences. We have to make some assumptions because we just don't know so much. Now, we hear within this brief portion from chapter 2, we hear about a day of darkness of gloom, the day of the Lord, how it will be this dark, dark day. And we also hear imagery about this vast army that will invade. But we don't know anything about that. We don't know if this is a literal thing. We don't know if it's a metaphorical thing, because both of those things tended to happen in terms of the prophetic writings. Sometimes the imagery that the prophet would use was literal, like this literal thing is going to happen. And sometimes it was just an image for some other thing that was going to happen. In the first chapter of Joel, he talks about a plague of locusts that's going to come. Now, this is not unheard of. I've never witnessed it myself, but they do happen. I've seen footage of it. Perhaps you, you have too. And when a locust swarm comes through, it's so like 
utterly this blanketing everything with the billions upon billions upon billions of these big ugly insects that are coming through they cover every surface and when they're flying they're dark enough and thick enough these clouds that they can literally block out the sun that sounds like a day of deep gloom doesn't it and yet at the same time is this army of locusts that joel talks about is he being literal or is he being figurative because we also hear about this army that's going to blot out or that's going to invade so what's going on? Are we talking about a natural disaster? Are we talking about uh, an invading army that's so numerous that they're just gonna wipe out everything? We just don't know. But what we can make of it is this. Whatever Joel is talking about, it seems like it's gonna be an utter disruption. And that life as the people know it is going to be changed because of this thing that is going to happen. Now that's the thing about the prophetic writings. They often brought with them this warning, the sense of warning that things are not good and that something significant, this utter disruption is going to happen. But what's different about all the different prophetic writings and what's important for us to recognize is the audience is oftentimes different. Sometimes the prophetic warning is aimed at God's people, the Israelites, we might say. Sometimes it's aimed at a different culture, one that they interact with or one that they, they're butting heads with. Sometimes it's aimed at an individual. Sometimes it's aimed at a whole group of people. Sometimes it's aimed at a different nation. Sometimes it's, it's this nation or that nation or this people or that people or this person or that person. We just don't know. But what it seems to indicate is that there is a disruption coming that's intended to get the attention of whoever the audience is. That seems to be the ongoing thing, and it reveals a larger cycle that we continue to see, something that I've talked about many times with the confirmation classes or in different Bible studies that we've had, that we see this ongoing cycle that seems to repeat itself over and over again throughout the scriptures, and I think throughout history, we find that the people have turned their back on God, whether intentionally or unintentionally, depending on their circumstances, and God's favor is removed, and gradually things get kind of lousy, and then something really big and disruptive seems to happen, and they're kind of like, oh yeah, maybe we should turn back to God. We have failed. We need to return to, we need to return to God. We need to turn back to God, and God's favor returns, and things go kind of good for a while, and then we sort of fall off the cliff again, and the cycle repeats itself. This is something that the prophets talked about over and over and over again. And in some prophets, they even talked about the cycle themselves, like you're going to do this and then things are going to be bad and then God's going to return and then after a while things will be good and then things are going to repeat. It's this ongoing cycle, this ongoing disruptive cycle that we see over and over and over. Whatever it is that Joel is talking about, it seems to indicate this disruption. And that when God finally acts in whatever way that's going to be, it is not going to be able to be ignored. Now, as I consider all of this, and I think about all of this, I think about some of the other parts that we hear. Joel talks about calling a feast, have a solemn assembly, bring all the people together not so much in celebration, but recognizing, do this solemn thing to acknowledge that which the Lord is doing. For us tonight on Ash Wednesday, this is perhaps important for us to remember and to recognize and to realize because we have our cycles that we do as well as we go throughout the church here. 
I love the repeating nature of the church year and how we move from one season into the next, into the next, and into the next, and how each season has its own focal point, has its own thing that we zero in on. And tonight, on Ash Wednesday, we are kicking off the season of Lent. Now, Lent is oftentimes called a dark season where the darkness continues to grow as we move closer and closer and closer to Holy Week that will ultimately ultimately coalesce or, or culminate, is probably the better word, with the death of Jesus on Good Friday that the darkness grows, the brokenness seemingly grows, and and, and with it, this dark sensibility in which we acknowledge our own mortality, and that's really the focal point of Ash Wednesday. Here in our Lutheran tradition, or at least in our congregation, but definitely in the tradition as well, we don't always zero in on those big rituals, something that we tend to call a public display of piety, a big fancy way of saying a a practice that we do that that displays uh, our humbleness and and our, our humility before God. But Ash Wednesday is one of those times when we do. Now in normal circumstances, when we gather as a community of faith here on Ash Wednesday, we receive ashes on our foreheads in the sign of a cross and we hear the words, remember that you are dust and a dust you will return. It is a public display that acknowledges our own brokenness and the mortality, the death that is the result of it. We are reminded that God made humanity from the dust of the earth and that when our lifespan is over, when the time of life as we know it is done, we will return to the earth. Our bodies will decay. It's just an all part of the natural process. This is what we acknowledge tonight with Ash Wednesday. This is what we continue to remember as we move through Lent, and we remember the ultimate cost of this in the death of Jesus. But we also recognize that whatever it is doing, or whatever God is doing through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it is moving towards something. And we also remember that Good Friday is not the end of it. That death is not the end of it because a couple of days later, the tomb is empty. Jesus is raised. New life comes out of death. But we find the tension that's within it. This utter disruption of the life and the death of Jesus, which is followed by the resurrection, something that disrupts everything. And the world is not the same because of it. Now, Also, here in our faith community, our liturgy, our practice, whatever you want to call it, the way we go about Ash Wednesday, I think takes this tension that we all feel, the tension between that which is hard and and, and humbling, that which is somehow just not good in death, and then the new life, the promise of new life that we have through Christ, and we put them together. We acknowledge the tension of the two, and we do that in our own practice of receiving the ashes and and hearing the words, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return, followed immediately by the promise of Holy Communion, the promise of God through Jesus that acknowledges that the new life we find in Christ is bigger, is somehow greater even than death. Whenever we come around to Ash Wednesday, I start to think in terms of a funeral. Ash Wednesday is one of those few times in the church year when we really zero in on the idea of mortality and death. 
but it's an idea that we acknowledge also that we experience throughout the course of the year whenever someone from within our community dies. Now, one of the things that we talk about, and we have done so in recent, in recent memory here within our congregation, we've had a few different funerals in the last few months. One of the things that we do is we acknowledge the pain of death. We acknowledge the separation that death causes, and that we acknowledge that no matter what the circumstances are of an individual's death, there is something that somehow feels wrong about it. But at the same time, we also acknowledge that promise which God has made that has somehow overcome it. That no matter how wrong this feels, the promise is that the utter disruption of death, the separation of death, the brokenness of death is overcome by what God has done through Jesus. And that that promise is larger than any of this stuff over here. And yet it's all mixed up together. Likewise, we acknowledge the utter disruption of everything that's going on in this world whether it's big and worldwide like a pandemic or just the regular day-to-day -day life type things that are hard and we have no control over. All of this serves as this ongoing reminder that this is all mixed up together. And yet the promise is ultimately that God has not been left alone in it. Joel talks about who knows, maybe God will relent and turn away from the idea of judgment. And we find in the promise of Christ that that's what God has done. God's mercy is on display. God's love for all of humanity and all of the world, all of reality is on display as God is somehow bringing the chaos towards order. I don't know how it works, but we cling to the promise. We acknowledge that which is broken within ourselves. We turn away from it. We repent of it. And folks, you've heard me say this before. That's literally what repent means. It means to turn away from. And we turn back to the one who is and already has done something about it. God's mercy is on display through God's claim upon you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the action of Jesus Christ. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. But remember the promise that your story does not end.